This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, can traditional Chinese medicine help dementia? We have a look at the evidence. The extraordinarily high chances each of us have of experiencing a stroke during our lifetime. Significant inadequacies in the care of people with stroke in Australia and pill testing at music festivals refuses to go away as an issue, mainly because state governments are reluctant to approve pill testing, despite calls by the Australian Medical Association and the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, neither organisation known for their radical sympathies. Polling suggests the majority of voters support pill testing too and still young people are dying. Media coverage says there have been six deaths since summer, since the summer began. In Victoria, the crossbench is wanting action. St Kilda Council wants to conduct a pill testing trial, and yet the Labour government in Victoria is refusing to budge, despite setting up a trial of a safe injecting room. In New South Wales, there's growing pressure on the coalition government. So at least the squeamishness is on both sides of the aisle. Olivia Willis reports on health for the ABC Science Unit and has been investigating the facts behind pill testing. Welcome back to the Health Report, Olivia. Thanks, Norman. So let's just, where in the world do they do pill testing at the moment? Well, in Europe, they refer to it as drug checking and there are services pretty widely available in, yeah, kind of across Europe. I think it's between 15 and 20 countries that kind of routinely have services available at festivals and also in the community where you can actually go to places and get drugs tested. But in Australia, we've just had one trial so far, which was at the Groove and the Move Festival in Canberra last year. We'll come to just what was done in that trial and the situation in Australia more. But when you look across Europe, is there evidence that pill testing reduces deaths? Evidence that it reduces death is tricky. Like any harm reduction measure, I think harm reduction experts or advocates will point that a clear reduction in deaths can actually sometimes be difficult to show because it, as, I guess, interventions, they can be difficult to evaluate. But in terms of reducing harm, yes, the evidence points to the fact that, that it can be an effective way to reduce harm. So in, in terms of evaluations from the services operating in Europe, that shows that having pill testing services can lead to less drug taking and can help people to consume drugs in a safer way. So whether that's um, choosing not to take a drug that they intended to or taking a smaller dose of that drug after they've, after they've had it tested. And this is reminiscent of the debate about uh, needle inje- safe, safe injection rooms mm. and needle exchanges during the early days of the HIV epidemic, where people said, well, this is going to be a permission license for immoral behaviour and intravenous drug use, is there, which in fact wasn't true. Is there any evidence that pill testing, drug testing in, increases usage? No, there's certainly no evidence from from the European trials or the, the services that exist there that it would lead to an increase in drug use. And as I said, actually research points to that it could probably decrease um, drug use and, and decrease um, drug-associated harm, I suppose. Um, and actually, the UK, they had their first pill testing trial at a music festival. They published their results from that. I think it was in December, and they found that it was something like one in, I think, one in five substances tested was not what people expected. And among those people who got the results that, you know, they got a surprising result that the the pill or the capsule that they handed over didn't have what they thought it did, about two thirds of them chose to hand over more drugs to be destroyed. And and researchers in the US and Austria and Germany, and actually some research that's been done in Australia in the early 2000s, made kind of similar findings that if people who, people who use pill testing services, they're less likely to consume drugs if they're told the drugs contain harmful substances. That seems to be a clear And remind result. us what they found the Canberra trial? 
So the Canberra trial, they had, I think it was 125 people visited the, the pill testing tent and 83 samples were tested. And the, they found that more than 80% of people believed they were taking MDMA or they believed that ecstasy was in the pills that they brought. And in reality, less than half of the samples contained relatively pure MDMA. So I think it was 42 of those 70 pills contained some MDMA, 32 contained a high purity of that. Um, there were a significant number of samples that contained filler or cutting agents. And there was also, they found traces of antihistamines, of caffeine, dietary supplements, oil, um, toothpaste was found. So a whole array of things things um, that I am sure people didn't expect. Um, but importantly, they, they found two potentially lethal substances. So one was um, N-ethylpentalone, which we know was responsible for the hospitalisation of um, a dozen people in New Zealand last year. So they detected that. And they also found what they believed to be was kind of a cousin or associated with a drug known as M-bone, which is kind of a, a deadly synthetic hallucinogen. And how, how accurate and reliable is the technology? Because it's fine having pill testing, but if the technology is not up to the job, um, uh, is, it, is it comprehensive? Is it going to find everything? I mean, it's unlikely to, isn't it? So basically what it does is the technology, the machine that's used at, well, at the camera trial is called an FTIR um, spectrophotometer. And the idea is that it uses kind of a laser beam. It checks samples against a library of 30,000 chemical compounds. And there has been some concern raised that, well, can it detect all you know new psychoactive substances? And there's been a huge explosion of those drugs, particularly in recent years. So the machine itself... I mean, the, the people that run the trial say they think it's very robust technology. It can detect... It it can't detect the exact nature of every new drug because they're emerging faster than the rate in a way that we can keep up with them. But it can detect the presence of unknown substances. So if there is something in there that is a new drug, the machine will still be able to detect that it's there, but we might we'll not be necessarily able be able to it identify is. it. But in that case, what happens is it's given, so um, drugs kind of, the, the test basically, you're given a classification um, and it's, it's kind of given what's known as a red result or it's red flagged, meaning if there is something in there that is unknown, and they don't know what it is or what its effects could be, they'll kind of give you a red result saying we, you know, very strongly against advise you against not taking this because we don't know what's in it and we don't know what the effect could be. Seems like a fairly simple choice for politicians. Yeah, there's also, I mean, in terms of other kind of toxicology concerns, there's, there's been some concern around detection limits of the technology. Um, I think there was, a, there was a piece, there was a toxicologist last week that raised the idea of, you know, can it detect traces of things like carfentanil, a very potent and dangerous opioid, um, which at very small traces can be dangerous. But, you know, I, I put that to the people running the trial um, and they said, look, it's possible that the machine may not be able to, to detect some substances at very, very low levels. But they said it was very unlikely that at such levels it would cause any harm. So they're very confident in the kind of safety and efficacy of the technology that if there's something in there, whether they can identify it or not, they certainly can detect it and advise, you know, on that. Olivia, thanks for joining us. No problem. Olivia Willis's article can be found on ABC Science Online via the ABC's website. You're listening to The Health Report here on ABC RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Norman Swan. A global analysis of stroke incidents has found that in some countries, one in three people will suffer from a stroke at some time in their lives. It's an extraordinary number. And even in Australia, one in five of us will have a stroke during our lifetime. These statistics will surprise many and could overturn 20 years of teaching GPs and other doctors how to assess 
assess a person's risk of having a stroke. The person who led the study was Greg Roth, a cardiologist at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle. I spoke to him last week while he was on call at his hospital. Pleasure to be with you. These figures seem extraordinary. So what we're talking about here, I just want to be clear, what we're talking about here is not your risk over the next five or ten years of having a stroke, but your lifetime risk of having a stroke. That's exactly right. We know that the behaviours and lifestyle choices and medical care that people receive over the course of many, many decades piles up and drives a risk of stroke. And so we really wanted to capture that perspective of looking at the whole life course. Now, this is the Global Burden of Disease study, which we've covered many times over many years. So before we go any further, what's the degree of reliability in the statistics we're about to talk about? The statistics are quite reliable. So give us a sense then globally of what the lifetime risk is, because the average was about one in four, 25% risk, which is extraordinary. But some countries were even higher than that at one in three people. The range is stunningly broad, and that was one of the things that was really surprising to us. We were able to combine all of the world's available data on either dying from strokes or having a stroke and surviving afterwards. And we found that in some locations, the lifetime risk might only be one in 10. And at the very high end, we found that it could be as high as 30 or even 40%. Well, let's be parochial and talk about Australia and North America. The risk in Australia is actually lower than the risk in North America. In Australia, we see risks somewhere around 20%, and that's on average for the population. But we know there are certainly high-risk populations within Australia where we would expect that risk to be even higher. But on average for Australia, we saw one in five people having a chance of a stroke in their life. In the United States, it was about 5 6% higher than that. And some European countries were quite high. That's right. The risk of stroke in places like Spain and France looked a lot like Australia. But as you headed east, we found a rising gradient and a larger lifetime risk of stroke. And some of the countries in Eastern Europe actually have among the highest risks of stroke in the world. And yet some disadvantaged populations, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, are down at 1 in 10. Why is that? Yeah, disease patterns in Sub-Saharan Africa are really different than the rest of the world. For example, individuals in that part of the world face burdens related to HIV and malaria and tuberculosis. The other thing is when we start looking at the risk factors for stroke, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, we find that those are actually remarkably high in sub-Saharan Africa as well, which is, I think, something that most people don't realize. And so the question is, if they've got all those high risk factors, how come they're not having high risks of stroke? And I think what we found in this study pretty convincingly is that the reason is that stroke really only starts occurring after age 40 and then ramps up very quickly as people age into their 60s and 70s. And people die at a much younger age of other causes in sub-Saharan Africa. And so what we were able to show is that if you were to treat these other conditions that kill people at much younger ages, then we should expect a rapid rise in stroke in sub-Saharan Africa as those countries begin to develop faster and faster. What are the features of the Chinese population, Eastern European populations that give you a much higher risk of stroke? That is maybe the most important question of all. And the first message I want to be really clear about is that it appears that the dominant risks of stroke are the same everywhere. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, tobacco smoking, physical inactivity, diabetes, and poor diet without enough 
fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and lean proteins and fish. Those are the things that are driving the vast majority of stroke everywhere in the world. But we do see that there are some risk factors that are much bigger contributors in particular places. And one of the ones that doesn't get mentioned enough is alcohol, especially in parts of Eastern Europe, really dangerous patterns of binge alcohol use. And that in and of itself is strongly associated with stroke. In China, I don't think we really know why there's so many more strokes in China, and for that matter, Japan, than other parts of the world. But we do see relatively high blood pressure there, and there may be aspects of dietary choice, including the amount of sodium in the diet. Salt. That could be a big, yeah, that's right. And I should have asked this question earlier. There's two kinds of stroke. There's one where it's a blood clot blocking the artery, which is the commonest kind of stroke in places like North America and Australia and Europe. And then there's hemorrhagic stroke, which is the dominant stroke type in Japan. When you divide the stroke into causes, a hemorrhage rather than a blood clot, does the picture look any different? Actually, even in places like Japan now, we actually see far more ischemic strokes than hemorrhagic strokes. But there certainly is a predominance of hemorrhagic strokes at younger ages and in places where there's less access to healthcare. I mean, we found that the lifetime risk of ischemic stroke is much higher and it runs somewhere around 18 to 20% on average compared to about 7 or 8% on average for hemorrhagic stroke. But the important message here is that all of those risks that I described, those things that we know how to modify, those choices that people can make in terms of addressing you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, good diet choices, avoiding tobacco, those are drivers of both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. So I think the public health message here is the same, which is we know how to eliminate probably 80% of the cause of stroke, and it's going to bring down both those ischemic and those hemorrhagic strokes. Having said that, though, general practitioners in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, in Britain, and many European countries are told, well, you don't just treat high blood pressure or you don't just treat high cholesterol. You actually assess a person's total risk of their chances of a heart attack or stroke over the next five years or 10 years. And countries set different levels, but they say, but it's usually around about 10%, maybe 15% risk in the next five or 10 years. But they don't actually calculate a lifetime risk where you're just slowly acquiring the risk, the arteries are slowly blocking up. I mean, is this a bonanza for the pharmaceutical industry where you say, well, in fact, from the day you're born, it's a 25% risk. We should be putting blood pressure pills and cholesterol-lowering pills in the water supply? No, I don't think it's a bonanza for the pharmaceutical industry. I think that there are many things that you can do to modify your risk of stroke and, for that matter, you know, heart attacks that are not just taking medications. In fact, the earlier in life you start to focus on living in a way that reduces your cardiovascular risks, the less likely you are to need medications long-term. So I think, you know, what we need to do is take a step back and it may not mean that you want to use our risk score to decide if you should take medications or not, but it does mean that the idea that we only start assessing people's risk at, let's say, age 40, and then we only look out five or 10 years is not helping us take that big picture, long view. What we really want to help people do are really simple things like, let's say, maintain a healthy, normal weight throughout the course of their life. We know that if you can maintain a healthy weight as you go through middle age, that you are going to be at much lower risk of having these kinds of diseases like strokes and heart attacks. And so we have to go much earlier in life. We need to think about how we're educating kids in schools, how we're making healthy food available, how we're making workplaces, healthy environments where people can get physical activity. We really need to focus more on that message of what I call primordial prevention. You know, the things that you can do that underlie the development of the risks. 
Greg Roth, I can hear your pager going off for people in Seattle who've clearly not necessarily prevented their heart disease well enough and they're calling you for urgent cardiac care. So we'll let you get back to your patients. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. I appreciate the chance to talk with you and am hopeful that this kind of work really helps people make better choices. Greg Roth is a cardiologist and public health researcher at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle. Staying with stroke and moving to stroke care. Australian research has shown that 30% of people having a stroke in Australia are not being admitted to a stroke unit, and many are not receiving appropriate rehabilitation. This is not good news, since outcomes are much more likely to be great, to be better, I should say, in a stroke unit, and and rehabilitation from the get-go makes a significant difference to the level of disability a person experiences. Elizabeth Lynch is at the University of Adelaide and is the lead author on this Medical Journal of Australia paper. Elizabeth is in our Adelaide studio. Welcome to the Health Report, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for having me. So what did you find when you looked at the data, I think on 3,000, nearly 3,500 uh, patients experiencing stroke in Australia? Yeah, so what we found with stroke, we know that a certain proportion of patients will die. And in our sample, about 12% of people died. Some people will recover and have no signs of stroke. But for the majority of people, they will have some signs or symptoms of stroke. And that is when they need their rehabilitation. So that's things like input from the therapy staff, so allied health, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, as well as the nursing and medical staff. But we found that, and people that are, people that are dying don't need rehab. People that are fully recovered don't need rehab, but everyone else does. And we found that one in 10 of people weren't receiving any sort of therapy, any sort of goal-directed therapy to address their uh, stroke symptoms. Goal-directed, meaning hospitals. that this is, you know, what do you want to achieve in your life when you get back to world, you want to be able to go to the movies, it, go to the it's, shops, it's a, it's a, go it's back about to work. It's about therapy directed towards your effects of your stroke. So these are 10% of people who could have had this, were eligible for it and didn't get it. Absolutely. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people and it's really quite shocking. Why was it occurring? Well, that is what we don't know. So, um, so and, and the assumption here is that they're left with disability that otherwise they might not have had. Well, that it, there's a very real risk that that's what's happening, yeah, and that they're having more disability than what they should have had and, and that they will be slipping through their cracks and having real struggles when they get out of hospital, if they get out of hospital. Because for some people who don't get therapy, they get shunted straight off to residential care. So why is it happening? Well, we've, what we found is if you're receiving care in a stroke unit, you're much more likely to get the right care. So people who are on, so a stroke unit is a particular ward with staff that is specialised in dealing with strokes and the beds are all located together. So you, your bed is next to someone else who's had a stroke. These people get much better care throughout the hospital stay. They're much more likely to, to be assessed for the need for ongoing rehab and they're much more likely to access some form of rehab, it might be in a hospital or it might be at home or it might be in a community centre after they leave. And so, but when we've found that 30% of people aren't being admitted to stroke units, that's, that's a significant problem. We've known for 20, 20 plus years that stroke unit care is, will reduce death, will reduce disability, will reduce the need for institutionalised care. And yet the fact that three in 10 aren't getting on a stroke unit is very alarming. Are people being assessed properly after their stroke for rehabilitation? Well, that's another thing. So we looked at that as well. And we found that 57% of people had their rehabilitation needs assessed. But we don't actually know how people are assessing their rehab needs because after a stroke, 
you might have really obvious signs. So you might have facial weakness or a side of your body that doesn't move or have slurred speech, these sorts of things. But you might have more uh, subtle signs, things like issues with your memory or regulating your mood or continence. And these signs often don't show up unless you're being assessed using a really comprehensive assessment. And we do have a comprehensive comprehensive assessment tool available in Australia that is recommended for use. But only 11.5% of assessments were using this very comprehensive tool. That's so outrageous. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, that's this tool, this that is negligent is, care. This tool is reasonably new, so I, I do need to preface that. It's so not it's that only, new. It's just 2012. It's four years old. It is, yeah. So and it's so not this, that these, new. these data were collected in 2014. So um, there has been there has been kind of a big push now to get this tool used. We've updated our stroke guidelines in 2017 and now it is officially recommended in, in a document that all the clinical staff would see to use this assessment tool. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is um, getting momentum to get this tool used so people are getting assessed so apart from properly. So apart from raging on the health report, what other ways are there of actually getting action here? <laughs> Well, and the other so, issue, we haven't got much time to talk, we've only got about a minute left, but the other issue is have we got enough rehab beds, but we'll leave that for another time. I'd I mean, love to talk about that as well, yeah. We probably don't have <laughs> enough time. rehab beds because people get shunted out of hospital after five to seven days and home care is not the, probably the best for some of them. That's true, I agree. So, um, apart, so apart from raging on the health report, what needs to be done? So we, well, there, is, there is a lot of work being done to improve the access to stroke unit care, which I think is, is you know, a key move. So... In 2015, when these data were collected, there were 87 stroke units. In 2017, when the audit was redone, there were 97 stroke, 95 stroke units. We're getting much better retrieval systems, so people um, will be moved into stroke units. I think this is ongoing work that, that nationally is being looked at. And so I if somebody's listening to this and their loved one gets a stroke, they've got to ask for the assessment tool to be implemented and really sit on the staff. Absolutely. So previous work we've done, if you've got a family advocate, you get a much different level of care. It's, it's sad to say, but I think that goes with any, any health, you know, any aspect of health. You need to, if you advocate, you get better care. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Lynch is an NHMRC early career researcher at the University of Adelaide. Strokes, both large and small, are a common cause of dementia. And in fact, this so-called vascular dementia often coexists with Alzheimer's disease. And some people think that micro-strokes can in fact precipitate Alzheimer's. So vascular dementia is a huge problem and there isn't a proven treatment once you have it. That's why a systematic review of the available evidence on Chinese herbal medicine is potentially so interesting. The review was performed by a team led by the director of the Cochrane Collaboration in Singapore, Edwin Chan, and Christopher Chen, a neurologist and director of the Memory and Cognition Centre at the National University of Singapore. For most dementia patients, when you examine their brain, very few have either pure vascular dementia or pure Alzheimer's disease. Most patients will have both types of lesions. So mixed dementia is really the most common cause of dementia globally. In Asia, we find that there are many people with cerebral vascular disease and many people with vascular dementia. Therefore, we thought it was very important for us to examine vascular dementia and also treatments for vascular dementia. This is especially also because in Asian societies, traditional medicine has a big buy-in. And in this era of evidence-based medicine and fake news, we felt we should have a look at this evidence base which we have. Edwin, does traditional Chinese medicine even define vascular dementia as an entity? 
No. Traditional Chinese medicine built the underlying cause to forces and energies which are not amenable to direct scientific investigation. And of course, Norman, I, I think it's fair to say that the practice of traditional Chinese medicine has changed considerably over the years. They've been influenced by allopathic medicine concepts. So traditional Chinese medicine practitioners are often using the terminology used by allopathic medicine. Allopathic medicine being our kind of medicine. Western medicine, yes, right. And also many practitioners of allopathic medicine or Western medicine are looking to traditional Chinese treatments to address the needs of their patients. And it's set against the background that there isn't really any treatment for vascular dementia apart from reducing your heart risk factors. Well, even that is controversial because we don't have good evidence that treatment of vascular risk factors ameliorates vascular dementia. We don't really have that yet. It's really very frustrating. What Chinese therapies did you look at? I think it's fair to say that those who firmly believe in the philosophy of traditional Chinese medicine would be horrified at what we are doing because what we are doing (laughs) is used standard international criteria for vascular dementia and only accepted trials which use these criteria. So if there are trials using traditional Chinese medicine which use a completely different classification system, then we don't detect them. So let's look at the treatments that you found when you searched for studies, what they contained and what sort of results they obtained. In the end, we identified three preparations because they are complex of several herbs that we thought merited further research. And we are circumspect because, in general, the quality of the evidence that we found was low to moderate. And using the great classification of certainty of evidence, we did not find any preparations that had a high certainty of evidence. Mm -hmm. And so that is basically our finding actually as an implication for future research. So what you found was that there were three traditional Chinese medicine preparations which had a signal, if you like, from the existing research that you found worthy of further investigation. What were they? They have tongue-twisting Chinese names. <laughs> and one was what we call NMT or Nao Mai Tai, and the other one NXT Nao Xing Tong, and the third one TXL or Tong Xing Luo. And as I said, essentially they're all complex of different herbs. This Cochrane review is unusual in the sense that it covers quite a broad spectrum of therapies under the name of traditional Chinese medicine. Yes. And I'm assuming that depending on the practitioner you go to, they're not necessarily standardised in terms of how they're presented to individual patients. Yes. So that's the other tricky part of doing research on traditional medicines in general, and that is the standardization of the preparation. And that is precisely why in our Cochrane review, we chose to look at that subset of traditional Chinese medicine formulary, which is highly standardized because of regulations in the production. And finally, for consumers who are listening to this conversation who might be thinking of traditional Chinese medicine, did you find any harm? That's hard to be clear about, Norman, because one of the problems with the quality of the trials was that we noted there was very sparse reporting of adverse events. And as a clinician, what really surprised me was even for the studies which reported adverse events, how few there were. In real life, when I treat people with vascular dementia, 
unfortunately, many of these patients have multiple comorbidities. So the risk of adverse events, whether it's due to the drug or not, is usually quite high. So that is one of the issues that we face when looking at these studies. Are they really treating patients with um, vascular dementia? Do we really know much about the safety? I think we really need more stringent studies to address that. So buyer beware, and let's get on and see if there is something useful in here because there could be something hiding away here which could be effective. Absolutely. And we have identified three preparations which appear to have a signal. We need to do trials based on these uh, compounds and see whether there's really any efficacy at all. And also importantly, as you uh, mentioned, is there a safety issue? Thank you both very much indeed. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Norm. Thanks for getting in touch with us. Christopher Chen is a neurologist and director of the Memory, Aging and Cognition Centre at the National University of Singapore. And Edwin Chan is at the Singapore Clinical Research Institute. You've been listening to The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.